Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back, everybody, to episode eight of the Red Seat Podcast. This is your May 24th edition of the podcast, and today I am joined uh, one week early by Editor-in-Chief of BP Boston, Ben Carsley. Ben, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. Thanks for accommodating my uh, my last-minute request to shift weeks. You are a, uh, a more graceful manager than, than many others I've seen. Yeah, you know, I really take a lot of my managerial cues from uh, John Farrell. So uh, say, players, players coach. Yeah, exactly. So say what you will about that, but... Um, Overall, Ben, we've got a whole uh, lot of stuff to talk about tonight, most of it really good. Um, it's been a fun year to to do this podcast, so um, I think it's a bit of a blessing that this thing did debut in 2016 rather than either of the last two seasons. Yeah, it was a bit of a slog at points last year. I liked, I liked that at, at probably not too far away from this point in the season last year, the game recaps had just degenerated into pictures of things on fire or one word recaps that said no uh it seems like we're in a better better position this year yeah you're definitely in a better headspace i remember that um that roster recap that you're referring to i think it was just a dumpster on fire right if i remember correctly. Uh, i believe it was a, a a smattering of several dumpsters on fire uh listed under each heading and it was pretty appropriate for the 2015 red sox yeah, that was pretty good. Um, a big part of that dumpster fire was Joe Kelly last year. Um, he's who we're going to lead off with tonight because coming off the disabled list, um, he was able to have a really dominant start this weekend, taking a no-hitter into the seventh inning. 
Uh, he did walk three guys in the outing, struck out seven batters. Um, I know it's just one start, but does anything uh, that you saw from him in this start make you believe that uh, there could be any real change here for Joe Kelly going forward? No, not particularly. Uh, you know, despite Joe Kelly's great stuff, uh, and yes, my Twitter mentions were a tire fire while he was starting. Um, I mean, I think we all know he's capable of this, right? Like, we know we know that he can zone in from time to time. He had that really impressive stretch near the end of last season before he hit the disabled list. So for me, it's never been a matter of can Joe Kelly put it together periodically. It's can Joe Kelly sustain any type of meaningful success. And I'm going to need to see a lot more than than one start to uh, to convince me otherwise. So it was it was great. It was unexpected. Uh, I would love to be wrong because the Red Sox could certainly use a stabilizing factor at the back end of their rotation. But I am uh, not all aboard the Joe Kelly bandwagon yet. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. And I want to talk about that second half to last year a little bit because uh, it's easy to lose sight of. Uh, what that really meant because you look at it on paper and you say oh he won a bunch of games he didn't allow a whole ton of runs but when we actually dig into the peripherals of what he was actually doing during that second half uh, where he posted 377 ERA uh, culminated in a um, 37 innings pitch 268 ERA in August which I think everybody remembers pretty fondly Um, but when you dig into those numbers uh, they weren't all that good Um, one of the things that really stood out to me was that um, the whip that he maintained in the batting average against throughout that entire period uh, during the second half was pretty mediocre to terrible. Um, he still was getting hit at a 278 uh, clip with a 137 whip uh, during that time, and he only had a 12.7% uh, K minus walk rate. So, um, pretty pedestrian numbers for somebody that was able to. Um, you know, really limit limit the damage during that time period. Yeah, and I think the thing that, that frustrated me about that stint was it, it sort of gave the Red Sox ample reason to reinvest in Joe Kelly as a starter once again. Uh, and I know you and I have spoken in the past, and we're, we're both largely in favor of seeing what he can do in the bullpen. But, you know, sort of the counter-argument to that is, you know, before the season, everyone was fretting, oh, the Red Sox have... Too many starters, what are they going to do? Who's going to be demoted? And, and we know that is never the way that it works out. You know, here we are, six, seven weeks into the season. We already have Erod on the DL. Joe Kelly hit the DL. Henry Owens isn't good enough to start right now. Brian Johnson's on the DL and AAA. So it makes sense, uh, you know, even though it's not the sexiest move, it makes sense for them to give Kelly one more shot and see if they can soak some innings out of him because uh, quality innings are are harder to come by than you'd think. And I think the fact that Sean O'Sullivan started two games is, is all the proof you need of that. Yeah, and there's really not a whole lot of help on the horizon. You, you mentioned some of those extra options that we were talking about in the early season. Um, Henry Owens hasn't really worked out. Sean O'Sullivan's just not very good. So um, there's a whole lot of reasons to continue to put Joe Kelly out there. Um, I would urge everybody not to get too excited about this because I don't think that it's going to end all that pretty uh, until we do see any real change in some of those advanced metrics. Um, you know, it's it's tough to believe what he's really doing at this point. Yeah, I agree. And when, when Erod is healthy, everyone's going to want to bump buckles from the rotation, but I, I would much rather bump Kelly. 
Well, that's an interesting point. So we were going to get to that a little bit later in the show, but let's just get to that now. Um, we've got David Price, obviously great. Stephen Wright, great, or has been pitching great. And Rick Porcello, who had another encouraging outing. We were talking about it a little bit offline before we got on the podcast, uh, just how well he was able to pitch out of trouble in that first inning during this uh, weekend's game, um, which was really encouraging. And... Um, Clay Buckholtz, uh, again, was uh, a dumpster fire. So we're, we're sticking with the theme of dumpster fires. But yeah. um, I think it's going to be a pretty difficult thing to justify to um, Red Sox fans and really to the remainder of the team. I, I know that we're very familiar with advanced metrics and you know looking at all those different things, and people who follow the show probably are too, but there's – just a massive segment of the population who's baseball fans who look at ERA and wins. And I think a lot of the people who play the game um, look at it the same way. So it's going to be very difficult for John Farrell to, uh, when Eduardo does come back, tell Kelly that he's going to get the boot considering what his last, you know, half a year's worth of starts look like versus what Clay Buckholtz last half a year starts look like. And I think that, the team might have a little bit of trouble with that concept too. So I'm I'm curious to to see or or hear from you um, why exactly you think that Joe Kelly would deserve to get the boot over Clay Buckholtz. Well, it's an interesting point you bring up that if you only want to look at their past, you know, last half seasons, Joe Kelly is perhaps more deserving. But if we narrow or broaden that lens a little bit, I mean, certainly Clay Buckholtz is the more impressive and established track record of success. Uh, I wasn't really coming at this at all from the angle of, you know, how is John Farrell going to justify this to the players? I was coming at it more from the angle that, you know, if anyone between the two of them, I think the pitcher who is most likely to put together a, a solid run is still Clay Buckles, even though he hasn't shown as much promise so far this season, maybe as, as Joe Kelly has. Uh, I know that's it, I get it with Buckles. I get why he's so frustrating to watch. Um, he's not in terribly. It's not, it's not really an enjoyable like few hours when you sit down and watch a Clay Buckhole start unless he's really, really dealing. But, you know, as I wrote about in my piece, uh, I think two weeks ago now, you know, he is only a few months of season removed from being dominant. And you want to talk about that stretch that Joe Kelly had at the end of last year, and you said, you know, you, you brought up a lot of key factors in terms of how it didn't really portend future success. Well, Buckles' dominant stretches don't really leave any doubt that he is dominant, and he was one of the better pitchers in baseball for the first half of last season. The problem is that just happened at a time when the Red Sox were awful. Uh, so I'm certainly, uh, I think it's not a bad point what you brought up about, you know, the Red Sox are, uh, it's been a constant theme this year, right? That they're going to go with the hot hand. They're going to go with who gives them the best chance to win. And we saw that when they went with Shaw over Sandoval and Holton Young over, over Castillo. And, you know, maybe that's going to manifest itself here too and Kelly over Buckles but it's still not the move that I would make. Uh, and I think that if you do cut buckles or trade buckles or anything like that, uh, it really has the potential to come back and bite you, especially considering how affordable buckles is in today's market. So I, I understand all that. And I think that that's all extremely relevant. And you really laid that out very well in a, in a recent piece as on the site as to why Buckholtz should not be the one to get kicked out of the rotation. Uh, if you haven't read the piece, I really urge you to go check that out. Um, but I think the other side of the coin that we haven't really talked about here is what if Clay Buckholtz has actually seen his skills diminish? And what if that Clay Buckholtz that 
has been really dominant in stretches is not coming back anytime soon. Because when you do look at what he has done this year um, so far, and granted it's been nine starts, uh, only three of which did he give up less than three earned runs. The rest of them he's pretty much been completely blown up in. Um, his numbers are worse than what Kelly has put up really at any time uh, through his through his time with the Red Sox. I mentioned a few of those other numbers, K min- K's uh, minus walks. Um, Clay Buckholz is currently sitting at 4.9% right now on the year. He's getting hit at a 260 batting average with a 147 whip. Um, and all of the peripheral numbers really back up just how bad he's been this season. So with that and the fact that Clay Buckholz is a little bit older, um, is it possible that this is the current version of Buckholz and that even though Kelly has flaws, the younger guy with added velocity uh, might be the guy who has the brighter future? Um, it's a point well taken, and I, you know, you can never rule out that this is just the real Buckholz now. And you know, if he still looks like this in another five, six, seven starts, maybe maybe I, I start start to shift a little bit away from the stance, but. For me, I want the higher variance guy. I, I know what Joe Kelly is, right? Joe Kelly is a 4.5 ERA guy who is going to string together a few starts like we saw earlier this week and is also going to have a lot of you know 5.1 innings pitched, 4 and run outings. Uh, low, even though the variance in his outings can be high, I think the bottom line with Joe Kelly is back-end starter. Buckles has a lot more upside than that, so I would rather take the gamble that that upside exists because quite frankly, I don't want the regular Joe Kelly or the bad Buckles. You know, if I'm going to get one of those two, I'd rather just go out and trade for another starter. Uh, so I think with Buckles, there's at least the hope that he's capable of putting together a 10 or 15 game stretch where he is that number two or three starter that the Red Sox need. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, it is interesting, too, when you look at these guys and you, you break down exactly what they do. Um, Buckholz certainly still is the, the true four-pitch pitcher here. And I think with Joe Kelly, you get an over-reliance on the fastball and the slider. And when those pitches aren't effective, which we've seen the fastball be ineffective frequently with him, um, he's a guy that's going to get hammered. So I guess, you know, it might be a no-win situation here. You, you hope that Buckholz is the type of player that is able to find his game and some semblance of it and turn this around. But you, you may be onto something that the Sox could be looking to, uh, to fill this gap externally, which is going to be a problem in its own right, because there really isn't a whole lot of options out there on the trade market. There's been a number of people that have written about that as of late too. So um, I guess fingers crossed, right? Yeah, and my last note on Buckholz is, you know, uh, we tend to talk about things in very drastic terms, like, oh, they're going to cut them, they're going to DFA them, they're going to trade them. I mean, the most likely outcome is what? Like a phantom DL stint is probably what they would do before anything else. Like, oh, his arm is tired or his legs are tired, and you you give him three or four starts in Potsacket to try to try to right the ship. So uh, I, no matter what happens, I really don't think we're looking at anything so dramatic as a DFA at this point. No, I, I certainly don't think so. There's... There's probably a whole lot more value in trading him to a National League club than there is in DFAing him, even at this point. So, agreed. Um, let's move on to something that's excellent to talk about. Um, <laughs> just one of my favorite storylines of this year, and um, you know, su- surprisingly so. I guess we didn't believe enough our first um, few conversations that we had uh, on this show, but Jackie Bradley Jr. is now 
your major league leader uh, in hitting streak right now at, at 27 games. I said that very ineloquently, but um, he currently has a 27-game hitting streak, uh, moved up to sixth in the lineup. Um, he's challenging now Dom DiMaggio, who has the Red Sox record of 34 consecutive games with a hit. Um, I found that really funny when I read that Dom DiMaggio had the record because uh, while Dom was a good player, he was nothing like his brother Joe, who has the mythical 56-game streak. Um, something about that DiMaggio family, though, right? It's yeah, whatever whatever is in the blood there, we uh, could use some more of it on the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. So um, he's currently at 27 games, as I mentioned. Um, they have the night off tonight as we're recording this. Um, the next person he can pass is Wade Boggs at 28 games. Um, but, I mean, the way that Jackie Bradley's been swinging the bat is just completely ridiculous. And I want to get your take on this because I know that you've been a big Bradley supporter in the past. And um want to know if you think this change is real or more real than what we saw from him in a six-week stretch last year. Yeah, I think it is more real. Uh, Matt Corey wrote a, a, a long piece on Bradley's breakout and whether or not it's sustainable last Friday, and I'd urge everyone to go read that because it's excellent. Uh, but, you know, one of the points he made is that his, his approach in terms of taking balls the other way and up the middle, even though it feels like he's doing that more, that's not really as big a driver and change as he's just hitting the ball so hard when he does make contact. And that's one of the best signs you can look for in a hitter. Um and you can just tell. I mean, he looks like a different guy at the plate. His mechanics are, are perfect right now. He's locked in. He's not just sitting on fastballs. You know, he's setting pitchers up and waiting for breaking balls. He's hitting hanging pitches. Uh, and it's just been really, really exciting to watch. And, you know, at, after last year, I, I sort of wondered if if Bradley was going to turn into Mike Cameron, you know, like a low-average guy, but with more power than we thought, someone who might hit 240 or 250 but with 20 bombs and gold glove defense, and then you wouldn't care, and you'd say that's great. But, I mean, I think the hit tool is better than I, than I thought it was, and it's just been uh, it's been really, really fun to watch. And, you know, I don't think he's a uh, 342, 413, 618 hitter, which is what he <laughs> is right now. should have him as one of the three best players in baseball. Uh, but I do think that he's someone who could legit, you know, I don't know, flirt with 300, get a batting, get a OBP up in the 380 range, and... The slugging percentage might not come down all that much. You know, I think it's a safe bet to be at least 500 plus. So uh, all things told, a pretty exciting streak for Bradley and one that doesn't look like it's uh, likely to end anytime soon. You know, even if the hit streak falls, I think he's going to be locked in for a while. Yeah, this whole story just has me smiling ear to ear. I just I, I never expected this uh, from Jackie. I mean, I, I thought that he was a great defensive player, um, loved the arm, loved watching him. Uh, thought the bat would be okay, and I thought, you know, best case scenario for this guy, he'd be like a 300 hitter who draws a lot of walks, gets on base a lot, but doesn't really have a whole lot of power. And he has a 39.5% hard contact rate right now, um, which is ridiculous. And this ISO of his at 276 is that's a middle of the order slugger um, type ISO. So. Um, it's just really impressive, and getting this type of production out of a center fielder, um, it's Trout-esque. And I kind of agree with you that I don't know how much this power is really going to go away because 
there's no doubt this guy is a monster strong. I mean, the, the way that he's able to throw the ball, I don't know if you've seen the video. I've probably watched it 50 times of him just chucking the ball from home plate out oh, to yeah. the, the, the stands. Oh, yeah. The, the raw strength that he has to do that and just the, the way that he hammers these pitches when he connects with them. Um, the guy's a freak athlete, and the fact that he's cut his strikeouts down, he's being more aggressive at the plate. Um, everything that we're seeing right now, this is a guy who, at center field, I don't think could but should hit 20-plus home runs a season uh, from that spot, which makes him a little like Adam Jones with a better OBP. Yeah, I mean, he's at 18 homers over his last about 420 plate appearances right now, so you know, we're getting to that we're getting to that level of sample size where we need to be taking this seriously. Um, and the great thing, you know, you mentioned how fun this is to watch, and I think it's fun to watch because we sort of bargained down our expectations for Bradley Jr. over the past several years. You know, at first he was going to be you know, not Jacoby Ellsbury, but Jacoby Ellsbury's replacement, and then he was a good bounce back candidate. And then we were like, well, his glove is so good, you know, let's just <laughs> let's just let him hit 250 or 260, and we'll deal with it. And he sort of brought us so low because of how bad his offense was in 2014 and for a large portion of 2015 that this ascension is it's just incredibly fun because I think I, I had sort of written this off as a possibility, uh, ignoring the fact that, you know, he's just 26 now. I mean, he struggled in his age 23, 24 seasons, and that's that's not unheard of. And we're, we're a little spoiled by, you know, Moogie Betts, who came up, and Xander, who struggled in year two but was successful right away, and sometimes – it just takes these guys a year or two to click, and it looks like it really has. Yeah, um, it's it's really a testament to Dave Dombrowski too um, that he saw, you know, value in Jackie Bradley Jr. I think there's no mistaking that Dombrowski is a little bit more old school in his approach. He likes strong defenses up the middle. We've mentioned that on the the podcast before, but clearly he thought that there was more potential here and. In the offseason, when you read about possible trades, and I was guilty of this myself, I think Jackie Bradley was often talked about as a throw-in to grease the wheels for um, some bigger trades that the Red Sox could possibly make. And the fact that they were able to keep this guy and that he's now in that conversation of young core players for the Red Sox right up there with Xander Bogarts and Mookie Betts just really is a testament to... um, the Red Sox believing in him and him fulfilling this potential. Yeah, and, and let's give a little credit to uh, Chili Davis, too. Looks like he uh, has played a pretty pretty integral role in helping Bradley turn it around. Yeah, it's it's been awesome. So hopefully he can keep this going. While all the attention has been on Jackie Bradley Jr.'s streak, uh, your boy, my boy, uh, Team Xander, um, Xander Bogarts has been really impressive himself. Um, He's got currently a 16-game hit streak on his own, um, third in the major leagues behind Eric Hosmer and his teammate Jackie Bradley Jr. Uh, Over the last 15 games, Xander Bogarts has been slashing 403-434 with a 597 slugging percentage. Um, I believe that Xander Bogarts is a legitimate MVP candidate so far this season. Um, I also believe he's the best player on the Red Sox. I want to know what your thoughts are out of that whole thing because there's really four guys on this team right now who you could probably say are in conversation for the best player on the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, I mean, we've dating back to last year when I wrote the first, you know, would you rather have Xander Bogarts or Mookie Betts post, 
I came out strong in the pro Xander camp. And that was even after his, you know, miserable 2014 and, and bets was uh, clearly on the rise. And, you know, I think it's, it's the sort of thing where maybe there's no wrong answer, but I've never been terribly tempted to switch away from bets to Bogarts. You know, this is, this is just always the guy I thought we'd see only he's a better defender than I thought we'd see. Uh, and it's, it's, I think you're right. I think he is, uh, all things considered, the best player on the Red Sox in there. You know, if we were going to do a trade valuation piece for the Red Sox, he would be number one in my book with Betts, Betts trailing him slightly. Uh, you know, Bradley's been a little better as of late. Obviously, Ortiz is the better pure hitter. Uh, maybe you can argue that Betts has more upside, although now that we see what, what Xander can do defensively, I'm not even sure that's true anymore. Uh, but for me, I, 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 I'm with you. You're never going to get me to, to walk you down from a Xander comp. <laughs> I, uh, I I think he's pretty special. So I asked Matt Corey this last week, um, but where would you rank him in the American League or really in all of baseball? Because I think the AL is pretty ridiculously rich in its young shortstops right now. But where would you rank him in the whole game uh, in terms of shortstops? And what about that MVP conversation? Um. You know, it's early for the MVP conversation, as good as he's been. He's also going to have the age-old problem of, you know, Ortiz at this point would get MVP votes. Bradley would get some MVP votes. So he might be, uh, you know, the Red Sox are more death by uh, uh, by depth than they are in any one or two superstar players. So I think that might be a little premature. Um, in terms of players, I would take over him. Push comes to shove, I might still consider Carlos Correa in terms of shortstops. Over Xander Bogarts, I think you could also make a case for Manny Machado, but I think he's in that tier. I don't, I don't think they're in a separate tier over Bogarts. Maybe, maybe Machado a little bit, um, but he, I, I mean, he, he, he's right there, man. And there, it, there is more talent. You know, Francisco Lindor is excellent. He deserves a shout out. Uh, Addison Russell in the NL is very good. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm blanking on other good young shortstops right now. Yeah, but, I, uh, I hope you're in, not including Trevor Story on purpose, right? Yeah, no faith in Trevor Story. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think Corey Seager is going to be very good. I mean, it's a great time to be a baseball fan with all of these young shortstops. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think those, I think Correa, Machado, and Bogarts are your are your top three and amongst all the talent. So. I, I did actually say the same thing um, in terms of Correa. He's the only one that I would consider putting above him. But it was painful to say that. Um, and when I was looking at the numbers, there were there were certainly things that I did prefer about Correa. I think he does have a little bit more power. Um, he may be a little bit more explosive on the base paths. Uh, he does walk a little bit more at this point. Um, Xander certainly has him in a lot of other categories, you know, runs and uh average and, and lots of things like that but i think at this point you know we both play fantasy baseball if somebody was going to offer me correa straight up in a dynasty league for xander bogarts i'm still dying on the hill with bogarts i'm not making that trade i uh, well when they're that even and you love one of them you know what's the point <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly i'd just rather like see what he can become um he he just is an incredibly special player so poised to already. That's been uh, that's been a real joy to watch. Yep. So while I would consider Correa, obviously, and I was just talking about that at length, um, the one guy who I didn't consider at that position uh, over Bogarts was Machado because I still consider him a third baseman, and I think that 
the Baltimore Orioles probably still do. They still have J.J. Hardy signed to that contract. But it's going to be kind of difficult to continue to um, play him at third when I think he's your best shortstop and he can hit like he can hit. So I'm wondering whether or not you still consider Machado a shortstop or, or, or I should say third baseman, or do you consider him now a shortstop and do you think he ends up playing there uh, more often than not? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised they did move him back there. You know, I thought after two years of, of playing third base at a pr- pretty much historically great level defensively, I thought he, they would keep him parks there, but I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I was under the impression he's been playing shortstop pretty much for all of May. Um, and I don't know if that's only going to be a thing while Hardy is on the DL, but I think he's at least capable of playing shortstop, certainly. And, and honestly, he's a pretty good shortstop. So, oh, okay, if you want to count him as a third baseman only, but I think because he deserve, because he can play short and is playing short right now, I think we have to at least include him in the discussion. Although if we exclude him, it's easier to rank Bogarts first. So <laughs> I say we exclude him. All right, I'm sold. He's a third baseman, and Xander Bogarts is the best shortstop in baseball. That's All that. Right. Yep, you, you heard it from two uh, team Xander guys. Ben's been driving this bus a long time, and I don't think he's going to stop anytime soon. So Two totally unbiased sources. Yeah, oh, completely. Yeah. So let's move on to Mookie. Uh, I want to talk about him because there was a little bit of concern, uh, albeit mild and, you know, unnecessary uh, at the beginning of the season that Mookie just wasn't quite hitting like himself. Um, he has been heating up uh, very much so lately. Um, and he's currently slashed 414, 469, 931 over the last week with that two home run performance on Saturday. Uh, his season line is up to 279 with nine home runs and eight stolen bases on the year. Um, pretty incredible for Mookie. I think we both kind of thought he would get up to that 300 batting average, 290, 300. Um, but the power is here and the stolen bases are here. I mean, everything's working for him right now. Um, you know, what can we say about him? Uh, he's he's really good. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see his walk rate jump back up. Uh, he's striking out more and walking a little less. Obviously, that's nitpicking when you have someone who is uh, as successful as he is right now. But, uh not sure how much longer he should be batting leadoff if he's going to have an OBP in the 320 range, although I do think it'll end up much higher than that as the season progresses. Uh, but no, he's great. Another player who sort of has ended up with a different offensive profile than I thought he would. It's almost like he and Xander sort of swapped the uh, the offensive profiles people expected them to have in the minors. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a ton of fun to watch, and, and the power is uh, is very impressive. You know, the, that bat speed is... Uh, you cannot teach that, and you can't teach the hand-eye coordination. And uh, given how young he is, I think that's going to be a weapon of his for, for quite a while. So this uh, this sort of three-headed dragon the Red Sox have developed, homegrown talent, is uh, can't really complain. It's pretty pretty damn fun to watch them every day. Yeah, I mean, a big concern of mine when um, Mookie did move to right field out of center field was just how the bat was going to play in right field. I thought he would be good, but I thought he would be a little bit of a – uh, unconventional type bat in right, a little bit more like an Adam Eaton type. Um, but I have heard from a lot of folks that think that he actually has 30 home run pop. Um, curious to hear what you think about that. He had a couple of those home runs that I mentioned. He's very good at the Fenway home run, sort of just eking it over the top of the monster, really utilizing that. But do you think that this guy has true 25 to 30 
home run power being as small as he is? Um, yeah, I th- certainly I think the 20 to 25 range. I mean, if you told me he hit 30, you know, once or twice in his career during his absolute peak years, I don't, I don't think that's crazy. Uh, I think expecting him to be a 30 homer bat regularly might be stretching it. Although, you know, right now he's on pace for just under 30. Um, but I think you're routinely going to see Mookie challenge for and slightly surpass 20 homers. Uh, I think, I think the pop is real. So predict it now for uh, the end of the season line for for Mookie Betts. Um, what do you have him for average home runs in stolen bases on the year? Uh, 288 average, 22 homers, and 27 steals. Okay. so That wouldn't be too bad, right? A little bit heavier on the stolen bases than the, the power. No, I would, I would love that line from him, and I think uh, – that would be a nice line for your leadoff hitter on your World Series champion, uh, Boston Red yeah, Sox. So. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so let's move on to a few things that haven't been going quite as well. We just talked about the three core guys that have been incredible uh, this year. But um, a few guys that are either having some difficulties or slowing down a little bit. And the first one I want to talk about is Travis Shaw. Um, Shaw has been really a great player this season for the Red Sox. Solid at third base. Um, been hitting really well, hitting for power. Um, but over the past week, he's been batting right around 200. Um, I'm wondering if you're concerned about the recent injury that he sustained. It looks like it's going to be pretty minor. And if the uh, playing every day is starting to catch up with him and whether that's going to be a concern uh, going forward because he's really never been an everyday third baseman in the big leagues. No, I'm not. I'm not super concerned yet, especially about the injury. You know, basically until I have, until I have reason to be worried. Uh, that's out of everyone's control. So I'll just let the chips fall, fall where they may. There. Um, you know, is he being a little exposed right now? Maybe, but it, his season batting line is still 305, 374, 530. Uh, so it, it's tough to be too upset with what he's doing. You know, quite frankly, he could be substantially worse than this and still be a fine you know, stopgap option at third base for this year, maybe even for next year. Uh, I think it's great that he's moved down in the order. I do think of him as more of a, you know, number seven-ish hitter than a true middle-of-the-order guy. Uh, but he's still walking. You know, he has six homers already. Uh, he's playing a more-than-capable third base. So I, I'm really not worried about Shaw at all. I, I'm still I'm still really pleased with the Red Sox have, have found here. As far as where Shaw's been hitting in the order, um, he's been hitting sixth for most of the season. They did recently just switch Jackie Bradley there. Would you like to see him continue to hit sixth, or do you think that Jackie, with what he's done so far this season, does deserve to move up to that sixth spot and stay there for a while? Uh, yeah, I mean, Bradley clearly deserves to be batting higher than he's batting right now. Um, I, I think Bradley is a better hitter than Shaw. I think he's shown that this year, so... I wouldn't mind having him slot, you know, one or two pieces ahead. Uh, obviously, it's a little tough because they're both left-handed, and that makes it easy for a manager to stack lefties late in the game. But, uh, you know, it's it's interesting where the Red Sox, there are, I think um, Ben Buchanan for Over the Monster posed the question on Twitter the other day, like, you know, what is your ideal Red Sox lineup? And, and I started to put one together in a response, and I, I really got stuck because at certain points I want to move Pedroia down, but Pedroia is hitting really well, and... You might want to move Hanley down, but Hanley's sort of the big right-handed bat that could stabilize everything in the middle of the order. Um, so it's 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 a good problem to have that the Red Sox have you know six, maybe seven really good hitters who all deserve to be batting in the first four or five spots in a lineup. Um, so I, I don't I don't get too hung up on 
on lineup configurations unless something is 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 truly uh, way out of whack. So where, wherever they want to be, wherever Farrell wants to stack them, that's the least of my John Farrell concerns. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when you look one through seven, there's nothing that you can really do to to make these guys not perform. It's pretty amazing the production that we have there, and um, the the lefty righty balance on this team has been incredible too, with Shaw Bradley and David Ortiz. Um, just hammering the ball from the left side. So that's been really nice as well. It makes it very, very difficult to imagine even where a healthy and productive uh, Pablo Sandoval could could factor into this at some point next year. And, um, you know, this is not on the agenda and not something I thought I'd talk about, but it just popped into my head as we were talking about lineup construction. And I just really don't know how, if ever, he's going to factor in on this team. Yeah, I, I honestly haven't even thought about it since he since we knew his season was was all but over. Uh, you know, I could see him ending up as a first baseman slash third baseman bench option until someone decides they want to trade him. I could see the Red Sox just just cutting him. Uh, it, you're right; he's got a long long trek back to relevancy. But you know, people don't people don't always stay healthy. There will be some at bats available next year in Ortiz's place. So. If he th- proves that he uh, is healthy enough to play, I, I still think he's probably on the 25-man roster opening day next year. Yep, hard to uh, hard to argue that for 95 million dollars. So exactly. there you go. Um, so Ben, strap in. I'm about to talk about catchers for the Red Sox, and uh, usually when this happens, um, I, I get a little bit cranky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Christian Vasquez is currently batting 225 on the year with zero power and little to no uh, on-base ability. Uh, Blake Swihart was recently called back up to play left field. Uh, well, Holt deals with a concussion. Um, Hannigan is still the backup catcher for the team, meaning that uh, Swihart is not going to get any time behind the plate for the Red Sox. Um, he played a large portion of his games down in Pawtucket in left field as well. It's sure starting to seem like the Red Sox are doing a lot to develop him in left field and very little to push him forward behind the plate. Um, I get the Brian Joyner argument of, you know, whatever's best for the team currently is what's okay, and I see that side of it. But I also see the Red Sox messing with the development of a huge bat potentially at a position where there's just no huge bats. I was looking at the recently released uh, updated tiers of catchers on BP today. I think Mike Gianella did the catchers. Um, and there was one five-star bat there with Buster Posey, zero four-star bats, and the three-star bats were terrible, in my opinion, considering you know what you think of when you think of an elite fantasy player, let alone a um, real-life player. So... Um, I don't understand this from the Red Sox perspective. I realize Holt's hurt here, um, and they need somebody to play left field, but come on. I mean, I mean, are we really abandoning the Blake Swihart as a catcher for the future? So I 80% agree with you, and I think you and I spoke about this last time I was on three weeks ago, and we were both displeased uh, by the notion that, that Swihart wouldn't be focusing on catching uh, you know, full-time. I have come around to the point where, you know, just because he's getting the majority of his plate appearances in left field right now doesn't mean that's how that has to work in a few months or certainly not even next season. Uh, is it worth 
the risk in terms of setting him back in his development behind the plate? In my estimation, no. That's This is not how I would be handling the Blake Swire situation. But I don't think we can, you know, uh, sort of decide that he's not a catcher anymore just because that's not where he's focused right now. Uh, I get not wanting to deal Hannigan just because, you know, then if something happens to Vasquez, you're depleting catching depth, which is something that, that, that no one no one has. So Hannigan is likely to hit the DL at some point. He's old for a backup catcher. He's fairly injury prone. I do think there will be a chance for Swihart to get more at-bats. You know, I, I the rah-rah Christian Vasquezness has slowed down a little bit, it seems like, now that people realize, you know, he, he really can't hit. Uh, and hopefully he can get at least a league average as a ca- hitting catcher someday, but he, he's not there now. And I, I'm hoping that people will start to see how this equation can be balanced. Uh, I have long maintained that there is an easy path for both Vasquez and Swihart to play plenty. For Vasquez to catch 80 or 90 games a year and for Swihart to catch the rest. And then also get some starts in left field or DH next year, maybe even first base down the line. Uh, as good as Christian Vasquez is defensively, I don't really think he's someone who needs to be catching 130 games a season. And as good as Blake Swihart is with the bat, I, you know, he's not, he's not Buster Posey. He's not so special that everyone in his way needs to be shunted out of town. So it's not a conventional configuration, but I do think there's still room for both of these players to coexist in the long term. Yeah, I would be interested to see him start to get some more of that share behind the plate, and I'm not sure that the Red Sox are really going to be willing to um, make that happen this year with the tenuous pitching staff being what it is. I think that the pitching coaches and the pitching staff um, are all fairly convinced that a big part of their recent success has been Vasquez, because when he came on board, um, the Red Sox did kind of start going on this little streak here that has them in, um, you know, right right behind the Orioles for first place right now, and um, really, in my estimation, the second best team in baseball at this point behind the Cubs. So, as long as the Red Sox have Hannigan, it seems like there's not really going to be a path for him to catch, and that that balance that you've talked about is probably not going to be achieved. And I wonder. You know what's going to be the effect of him on him long term of potentially missing an entire year of getting significant reps at the catcher position. Well, yeah, if that happens, it's bad. But I, I guess I think it's a little premature to say that's what's going to happen. I mean, Hannigan could could be hurt. They could just send Swihart down to Triple A and continue splitting his time behind the plate in left field. You know, as we've talked about, it's it's not what either of, of us would have decided to do with Swired. It's not how we would have plotted his development. But he's super young. He's under team control for at least the next four seasons after this one. You know, the Red Sox could have him only catch 30% of his remaining games this year, and the plan could still be to have him be an important, you know, catcher, an important piece of the puzzle as a catcher long term. It's it's just one season, and I get it. I, I, do, I wouldn't have done this either, but it's way, way too early to write off Swihart as a catcher, even if he doesn't see the majority of his plate appearances as a catcher this year. Yeah, you know, I wonder how much of this is Blake Swihart himself, too. Um, I wonder if, as a player who did play this position um, in high school and, you know, a little bit in the minor leagues as well, um, whether or not he just wants to be up with the big club that badly that he has volunteered to play left field, or if it's something that he sees as a potential way to get more playing time because he views Vasquez as that much better than him defensively. I wonder if that plays into it at all. 
I don't I don't know how much say he'd have. You know, I mean, he's he's a 24 year old kid in the organization. Uh, I think it's more likely to be that of a yes sir, thank you for the chance type of thing. If you know, if we say you're going to play left field, you're going to play left field. If we say you're going to catch, you're going to catch. If we say you're a long reliever, you're going to be a long reliever. Uh, I think it might be that type of a thing. But he has looked very comfortable in left field. Uh, I've been impressed by what we've seen from him in limited action so far. I have too, but I watch it begrudgingly every time. And <laughs> I know. I think about you every <laughs> every tough fly ball he catches in left field. I'm like, well, that's, you know, Jake is best. <laughs> yeah. I, he did play a ball pretty well off the monster. I believe it was yesterday. He uh, kind of barehanded it off the monster and threw it in second. And that was a good play. But every good play he makes too, I kind of make a, you know, because I, I don't want him to stay there. So I don't want him to play that well. I kind of want him to look like Hanley 2.0 out there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just selfish for me too. And I own them in a bunch of dynasty leagues too. And I can't figure out, you know, what this guy's going to be. So I'm just going to stubbornly hang on to him and every format and, you know, continue my Blake Swihart love irrationally as it may be. So uh, I think uh, here you want, want a hot take prediction. Yeah, let's do it. I think Blake Swihart will catch at least 60 games for the Red Sox next year. Okay, I, that's that's a hot take good enough for me to hold in all my dynasty leagues. So okay. there you go. You're getting a little bit of fantasy advice on this podcast too. It's it's hard for both of us not to go and give fantasy advice because uh, Ben does Tino as well, which if you don't listen to, you should listen to. Uh, and I've been doing the Baseball Professor Profcast for a very long time as well. So fantasy is in our blood, but... Uh, that's not what you're here for. So we'll get on to uh, some more Red Sox stuff. Um, I want to talk about Carson Smith, um, a guy who really figured to be a huge factor for the club um, this year. Uh, Wade Miley was traded to acquire him in the offseason uh, when Carson Smith has been healthy, which has been extremely limited sample size this season. He's looked every bit as good as advertised. Um, I'm starting to get really worried that with him getting shut down with this elbow again, that Tommy John is going to be in his future. So I wanted to get your take on that and your take on whether or not if he does continue to be hurt, whether or not you think Miley would be a better fit on this Red Sox team than him. Well, I, I think that's an easy yes, right? If you <laughs> Miley is a usable asset and, uh, you know, we, again, Sean O'Sullivan started games. He would have rather given those innings to Wade Miley. Um, yes, if Carson Smith is hurt, the Red Sox lose that trade. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, as to whether or not he is going to require Tommy John surgery, you know, I don't, I don't really enjoy speculating. I am, I am not injury egg on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I, it's never a good sign when someone has to get their forearm checked out this many times. You know, hopefully it's just a strain or something. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned. Yeah, I'm concerned too. But I still don't know whether or not I wouldn't do the trade. Um, you know, Wade Miley right now has a 4.5 ERA, and while we know that he's uh, a very durable starter, he's not a particularly effective one, and he hasn't been in a while. He's a 4.5 ERA guy. That's what he is. And um, I think in the American League East, um, he's probably going to be worse than that as he ages. So um, with Carson Smith, even if you do lose a year, year and a half to a Tommy John surgery, I think I'd still rather have him in the Red Sox system long term than what you're getting out of a 29 year old Wade Miley. Uh I get it. I don't agree with you. Carson Smith is 26. 
you're looking at a 28 year old reliever coming off Tommy John, high success rate but not guaranteed. Um, you know, your point about Miley being a uh, quantity over quality guy is well taken and it's accurate. But at that point, I think that would uh, I would take Wade Miley back. Well. Luckily for us, we get Brandon Workman soon, and uh, I have an irrational love for Brandon Workman after 2013, so maybe he can fill that gap, right? Uh, that would be great. We can have all sorts of articles on BP Boston about who can replace Carson Smith again. Went so well the first time. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so I want to move on to uh, what the Red Sox have for an upcoming schedule this week, but I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about... Uh, one thing that's really exciting happening this week in Red Sox Nation, on Thursday, uh, May 26th, uh, Wade Boggs is getting his number retired, um, and I'm going to be attending uh, that. I'll be at Fenway with my wife that night. Um, Boggs is getting his number retired, and he's joining Ted Williams, Joe Cronin, Bobby Dewar, Yaz, Carlton Fisk, Pedro Martinez, Jim Rice, and Johnny Pesky uh, as the only retired numbers for the Red Sox. Um, this is a huge deal. Um, just real quick, I want to read off some stats for Wade Boggs that he had uh, during his career with the Red Sox. Um, 26, he was number 26. Uh, he played for the Red Sox from 82 to 92, 10-year period. Uh, during that time, he amassed a 70.8 war in 1,625 games. Uh, his best season was an 8.9 war season where he slashed 363, 461, 588 with 24 home runs um, and a 171 weighted runs created plus. Um, just completely ridiculous. Eight, eight of his best seasons as a player were in a Red Sox uniform. So um, in my estimation, he is without a doubt the best third baseman to ever wear a Red Sox uniform. I know that uh, seeing him win a World Series with the Yankees certainly diminishes um, what Wade Boggs was for a lot of Red Sox fans who watched him for a long period of time, especially since he hopped on a horse after that World Series victory, and uh, that was very similar to what he and Clemens did here with the Red Sox in 1986. So that rubbed some people the wrong way, but um, he's still a Red Sox, and he was for almost all of the meaningful baseball that he played. So uh, he's one of my favorites, a complete legend, and uh, very, very, very excited to see him uh, get his number retired. So, uh, Ben, does Boggs mean uh, anything to you? After all that, I don't know how to follow. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I I uh, I don't really remember him with the Red Sox. I think I'm I'm a little too too young for that. Uh, I have certainly s- stood in awe of his stats. Uh, great episode of It's Always Sunny. Um, Excellent episode. Yeah. So I don't know. You know, he's not one of those iconic guys for me, but I think because of that, it lets me be like shocked by a lot of the stats that you just read off, uh, even though I know them to be true. You know, hearing them out loud just uh, paints a picture of, of of what a what a hitter he was, and it, it makes me wish that uh, you know I had been around to get a little bit of a of a better grasp for his ability at the plate. Yeah, and you mentioned his stats, and really, I think the legend of Wade Boggs will continue to grow as our understanding of sabermetrics and. Um, Really, any advanced statistics continues to grow because he is just such a sabermetric darling. Um, his numbers just continue to look better year in and year out as uh, as we understand them better. So really a unique talent, and I uh, couldn't be more excited to see that. So upcoming schedule for this upcoming week, we've got Colorado at home, which is where Wade Boggs' number will be retired. 
Um, and then we are at Toronto. So uh, pitching matchups are as follows. Uh, David Price versus uh, Jorge De La Rosa. Stephen Wright versus Johnny Gray. Clay Buckholtz versus Eddie Butler. Those are the first three. Uh, any of those stand out to you? Uh, I mean, the first two should be easy wins. You know, maybe not. Maybe not Wright versus Gray. John Gray is uh, is volatile, but does have great stuff. Uh, circa Joe Kelly and can shut down a lineup when he's on. But Price versus De La Rosa really shouldn't be shouldn't be a matchup, which means the Red Sox will lose. Uh, <laughs> Wright versus Gray, you gotta like our chances. Buckles versus Buckles versus Butler is, is just which Buckles shows up. You know, I'm a little bit more interested in that Buckholz versus Butler start than maybe I should be. Um, I agree with you with Price versus De La Rosa. That's a no-brainer. Um, Wright versus Gray. I think I would give a, even a bigger advantage to Wright than than maybe you would um, because Johnny Gray just has not been the pitcher that he was in college as a pro. Uh, I think his stuff has played down a little bit. Um, not a huge fan of him. Um but Eddie Butler has been pitching much better this season than he has in any seasons past uh, at the big league level. So I'm interested to see um, how how he fares against this Red Sox lineup. And um, I don't know, maybe just a little bit of curiosity from his prospect days, but uh, really interesting player there and somebody who Buckholz could get a win against as well. So. Yeah, and it's an important start for Buckholz because you know Eduardo Rodriguez is nearing that return, and uh, you know if he goes out there and throws seven innings of two-run ball, or if he goes out there and throws three innings of seven-run ball, uh, that might go a long way toward deciding his immediate future. Yeah, and it is worth noting that both those guys that we mentioned, Gray and uh, Butler, were both former uh, BP Top 101 prospects for I believe multiple years. So. Um, Pretty pretty solid pedigree there, and they're not at home, so they should be better. Um, Joe Kelly versus uh, J.A. Happ against Toronto. Um, Porcello versus Marcus Stroman, which is going to be an awesome start. And Price versus Dickey. Uh, where do the advantages lie in those starts, do you think? Uh, I think clearly Price versus Dickey, Stroman versus Porcello, you know, slight edge to Stroman. And Kelly versus Hap is probably a slight edge to Hap. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, Hap has been a bit of a, a pleasant surprise this year. I wasn't so sure that he would be able to carry over um, some of the success that he was able to have in Pittsburgh because, uh, you know, no Ray Searage to whisper sweet nothings into his ear and make him pitch better. Um, but he's been pretty good this season. And um, the Stroman versus Porcello is going to be a must-watch game. So... I'm looking forward to all those. Overall, if you had to predict a, uh, a win total out of these next six uh, games, what would you have it at, Ben? I'll go. I'll go four and two. I would also go four and two. So, um, me and Matt Corey had some wild predictions last week where we both uh, went off the rails and predicted six straight wins because we were just feeling it. But <laughs> um, alas, that did not happen. The uh, it, it's worth noting here, and we haven't talked about that on the show um, yet. But the Red Sox uh, did fare pretty well against the Cleveland Indians, taking two out of three. Um, but against Kansas City at home, they did run into some troubles. I was a little surprised that the Red Sox weren't able to um, get to Jordano Ventura a little bit more in that first game where they lost by, I believe, 8-4. to four. It was a little bit of a, a, a blowout uh, on that side. But I was surprised they weren't able to get to him. 
Um, but they were right in that second game. They only lost by a run, uh, and then they took the last game of that series. But overall, I didn't feel like the Red Sox were overmatched by the Royals. Did you? I didn't think they were overmatched, but I did think it gave a pretty clear vision as to what they want to aspire to in terms of playing really aggressive and crisp ball. And, and they have been pretty aggressive this year, and they're a good defensive team. But, you know, the Royals, are they're in their prime as a unit. They, it was really impressive to watch them. And you, you know you forget what makes them good when you don't watch them for a few weeks at a time. And uh, even even though you know they don't really match up on the mound all the time, and their lineup doesn't scare you, they do everything right. And the one game they didn't do everything right is the game they lost. Right. Um, so certainly not overmatched, but uh, also a reminder of, of how far there is to go. Yeah, absolutely. They're certainly a, a very impressive team. I, I am curious though. Did you think that? them not getting to Giordano Ventura was more about what Ventura was doing? Or do you think that the lineup just was facing a little bit of fatigue? Because, you know, Giordano not being a left-hander uh, and being a righty that can sometimes struggle with uh, command made me think that he was a guy that the Red Sox could get to, um, much in the kind of the vein of Danny Salazar, how they were able to get to him. I think Salazar has better stuff than Ventura does, and Ventura obviously throws very hard, but... I was a little surprised they weren't able to do more with him. Did you get to watch that at all or see anything there? Uh, yeah, I did watch that start. It was a few days ago now, so I don't remember off the top of my head. I mean, you know, they did score four runs in that game. That's not a bad outing from an offense. It might be bad from this offense, but it's a respectable number to put up. And, you know, Ventura is another high-variance high guy. I mean, yeah, he, he can throw some clunkers in there, but he can also shut you down, and he sort of – Sort of split the middle with the Red Sox, but I, I guess I wouldn't say I was surprised they didn't crush him. Uh, you know, he's he's not someone I necessarily look forward to my team facing, even if I'm not filled with dread when his name's across the mound anyway. Yeah, I think that's fair. We have seen him pitch some pretty amazing games as well as some pretty bad ones. So, uh, nonetheless, one of the the better pitchers in the league to watch, uh, just because he throws the thing so damn hard. He's a ton of fun. Yeah. So let's talk some minor leagues before we end the show today. Um, just some quick hits here. Not a whole lot of interesting stuff going on in the minor leagues. thing I wanted to lead with was the bad news. Rafael Devers, uh, who looked like he may have been turning a corner about two weeks ago, is currently now hitting 150 over the last 10 days. Um, it's, it's looking pretty bad right now. I wanted to get your take. I mean, he still hasn't faced a single pitcher um, that's... Uh, younger than he is, um, but is he overmatched at this level right now? I'm not worried yet. Uh, you know, he's he's 19 years old in high A. He's really really young for the level. It's only 168 plate appearances. Uh, does he look a little overmatched right now? Yes. Does he look so bad that I think he needs to be sent back to a level he dominated last year? No. Uh, I'd be fine with keeping him in Salem, letting him work through this. Uh, you know, he could repeat high A next year and still be way ahead of schedule. So I think it's important to realize how young Devers is and, and, and not to freak out. Um, you know, the walk rate's up. He is a uh, terrible BABIP. I don't, I, I haven't seen him this year. I don't know if that's bad luck or if it's bad contact. It's probably a combination of both. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm not worried yet. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, um, especially as, as guys like us who, who follow the prospects as they come up very closely, um, it's easy to lose sight of just how young some of these guys are for their level because 
the the guys that we focus on most often are top 100 prospects who are frequently young for their levels. So when we hear about a guy struggling, we don't necessarily always look to that age and realize like, hey, this guy's a full three years younger than what he should be for this particular level. And I used to have the numbers posted on a, on a note right on my computer as to what the average age is for every single level. Um, but it's quite a bit older than you would think from following top 100 prospects. So um, just keep that in mind when you are looking at what these guys are doing that um, – you know, we're we're frequently following the best of the best at these levels. So it's it's tough to oversell just how young these guys are that are coming up. Absolutely. Um Yoan Moncada, on the other hand, has been incredible still, batting three twenty four with thirty stolen bases in forty games. Um I say get him up to Portland. I don't care that Wendell Riho is playing second base there. Um this man needs a challenge and he needs a challenge now. I agree. I think he should uh I think he should be in Portland by June first. Alright. That's that's good for me because uh I have my uh last day of school here on June twenty third. I'm uh I'm working in a school right now, so at that point I can make my way up to Portland and hopefully see some Mankata and Ben and That would be very nice. It's gonna be a, a fun summer in Portland, I think. Yeah, well obviously Matt Collins is gonna be there, so that's oh, that's no all pla- the fun you need. No place is perfect. <laughs> all right, so Espinosa, Anderson Espinosa, uh, as we talk about young guys, and he's 18 years old. Uh, he had another rough outing recently, um, and I just wanted to mention that you know, as good as we've seen this guy be, um, the learning curve is steep uh, at A ball. And granted, it's not high A, but uh, a ball for an 18-year-old is a big challenge, and uh, just out there, I don't think anybody should get too discouraged by anything that they're seeing from him. I'm basically giving him a, a free pass. Like this year is a blank canvas for Espinosa. Do what you want, you know. Experiment with some things, have some fun, and uh, you know, just don't get hurt. That's about all I have to say about Espinosa. What do you think about this little struggle? Uh, he's missing bats, man. As long as he's missing bats, I don't really care about the rest. Uh, his walk rate's a little higher than you'd want, but he's getting hit a little. Don't, don't care. If he's missing bats, it means the stuff is there, and it just means his command and control and sequencing need work. And uh, everyone's do everyone's when they're 18, so not worried at all. Is he a top five pitching prospect in all of baseball for you? Oh, God. Off the top of my head, uh, probably not, but I think he's probably in the 10 to 15 range. I think he might be for me. Yeah, I don't have a list in front of me, and I, you know, for, off the top of my head, I don't know. But there are there are enough good pitchers who are close to the majors that I don't think I can push him in the top five. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm thinking about it right now when we've got guys like Urias and uh, Giolito obviously headlining that group. Glass yep. now, Snell's still there. Um, we've got Jamison Tyon. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I, you're talking me down a little bit. Um, so, yeah, probably 10 to 15 is respectable, but this is a guy who um, should move into the top five shortly um, because a lot of those guys we just mentioned are graduating. So the Red Sox have something extremely special on their hands, and um, probably uh, aside from Alex Reyes and the two top guys that I just mentioned, uh, one of the few who has the potential to be a number one. So. 
definitely going to be an interesting guy to watch. Um, Andrew Benintendi, who I mentioned before, isn't dominating yet in double A. Um, I want to get from you an estimation of how many weeks it's going to be until he makes that level his, you know what. Um, this is also a fairly aggressive assignment for him. He's won't turn 22 until July. He's already in double A. I'll say it takes him another few weeks to get acclimated and, but hey, let's be patriotic. Right around July 4th is when he's going to turn on the Jets and start crushing double A. I have no doubt that he's going to just annihilate it, though. I was looking at his numbers. I think it was on a, a podcast with uh, George Bissell, who does the Flags Fly Forever production uh, over at BP. You should check that site out as well. Um, and he just had video game numbers at, at A-Ball. Uh, just a, a 5.8% strikeout rate with a 9.7% walk rate uh, while batting 341 and slugging like a million. Uh, the guy's just something else, isn't he? He is, and I, you know, I think the gap between high A and double A is is perhaps the most challenging. Uh, oh, I totally to agree make. with you. So it's not at all a surprise to me that he's he's taken a small step back. Um, it's been pretty seasonable up here as well, but it's also, I'm sure, colder in Portland than it was in Salem. Um, so a bunch of stuff to work through, but yeah, there's absolutely no reason to doubt that he will uh, do quite well in double A in short order. And he's another guy where even if he doesn't and he has to start uh, 2017 back in Double A, you know he'll be he'll be 22, so that's okay. Yeah, uh, very very good issue to have if that happens. Um, last guy I wanted to touch on here, or second to last guy I should say, uh, Sam Travis, um, currently doing very well at Triple A for the Red Sox. Just another great depth piece that they have, and I think uh, a guy who just it, it's nice to have because he could either come up for the Red Sox and play a little first base way down the road, or he could be a pretty valuable trade chip as well. Uh, he's currently batting 284 uh, down there with five home runs and uh, looking pretty impressive. And he's a pretty good defensive player as well too. So just wanted to keep everybody updated on him because he did have such a hot spring and uh, at 22 years old and with what he did in the Arizona fall league, I think a lot of people have been pretty excited about him. I will say that I've I've heard mixed results on defense. Uh, I don't I don't think I'd paint him into the corner as of a good defender yet. All right, so a little bit of work still to be done there. Yes. So, um, last guy I wanted to talk about was Brian Johnson, um, a guy who we have frequently talked about as our preferred option from AAA um, to come up and start for the Red Sox if they do need to call a guy up from AAA. Um, He's no longer an option at this point because he's recently been DL'd, uh, dealing with some anxiety issues. Uh, we don't know how severe those are or you know, how long he's going to be out with that, but um, yeah, this is a serious issue, and I think a lot of people uh, in his age range, uh, you know, late 20s, deal with anxiety issues, and it's very real, and it can affect people's lives and performances. So I uh, just wanted to wish Brian Johnson the best as he gets better from that, and uh Hopefully he'll be back and physically able and, most importantly, mentally able to contribute to the team uh, at some point in 2016. Yeah. Um, you know, I know we try to keep these these podcasts pretty PG, but if you're if you're looking at this at all and thinking that, you know, this is this is not a real thing or he's weak, uh, cut the shit and grow up. This is real and uh, get, get him all the help he needs and hope he gets back on the mound in short order. Yeah, I don't think yeah, I could have said it better myself, Ben. So 
Yeah, absolutely agree. It's very, very real, and I do not want to hear any Boston callers complaining that he yep. can't handle the city or anything like Just that. Don't it's... be, don't be a Boston caller this once. Just let yeah. it go. Yeah, exactly. Find a different prey. Keep, keep shitting on Clay Buckles. Leave Brian Johnson alone. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree. All right. So with that, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in again to week eight of the podcast. Um, Ben, real quick, where can they find you on Twitter? You can find me at Ben Carsley on Twitter, and then you can find me uh, at BP Boston and at Baseball Prospectus writing about fantasy. All right. And you can find me on Twitter at at Dev Jake. And I want to urge everybody who listens to the show uh, and new listeners to uh, go ahead and subscribe to us. You can subscribe to us on iTunes uh, or Stitcher or Blog Talk Radio for that. Um, and then please feel free to rate and review us on iTunes as well. Uh, we have gotten some reviews so far, uh, I believe two now at this point, and uh, both five stars. So thanks for the feedback, guys, and we'll continue to try and make this show better with your feedback. And uh, we really appreciate it, and um, we hope you tune in next time. And until then, uh, for Ben Carsley, this is Jake saying thanks and good night. <laughs>